The Island of Silver Store, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 3. The Island of Silver Store, Part 2. Our work went on merrily, nevertheless, and the Christopher Columbus, hauled up, lay helpless on her side like a great fish out of water. While she was in that state there was a feast, or a ball, or an entertainment, or, more properly, all three together, given us in honour of the ship, and the ship's company, and the other visitors. At that assembly, I believe, I saw all the inhabitants then upon the island, without any exception. I took no particular notice of more than a few, but I found it very agreeable in that little corner of the world to see the children, who were of all ages and mostly very pretty, as they mostly are. There was one handsome elderly lady, with very dark eyes and grey hair, that I inquired about. I was told that her name was Mrs. Venning, and her married daughter, a fair slight thing, was pointed out to me by the name of Fanny Fisher. Quite a child she looked, with a little copy of herself holding on to her dress. And her husband, just come back from the mine, exceeding proud of her. They were a good-looking set of people on the whole, but I didn't like them. I was out of sorts. In conversation with Charker, I found fault with all of them. I said of Mrs. Venning she was proud. Of Mrs. Fisher she was a delicate little baby fool. What did I think of this one? Why, he was a fine gentleman. What did I say to that one? Why, she was a fine lady. What could you expect them to be? I asked Charker, nursed in that climate, with the tropical night shining for them, musical instruments playing to them, great trees bending over them, soft lamps lighting them fireflies sparkling in among them, bright flowers and birds brought into existence to please their eyes, delicious drinks to be had for the pouring out, delicious fruits to be got for the picking, and every one dancing and murmuring happily on the scented air, with the sea breaking low on the reef for a pleasant chorus. "'Fine gentlemen and fine ladies, Harry,' I says to Charker. "'Yes, I think so. Dolls. Dolls.' Not the sort of stuff for wear that comes of poor private soldiering in the Royal Marines. However, I could not gainsay that they were very hospitable people, and that they treated us uncommonly well. Every man of us was at the entertainment, and Mrs. Beltot had more partners than she could dance with, though she danced all night too. As to Jack, whether of the Christopher Columbus, or of the pirate pursuit party, it made no difference. He danced with his brother Jack, danced with himself, danced with the moon, the stars, the trees, the prospect, anything. I didn't greatly take to the chief officer of that party, with his bright eyes, brown face, and easy figure. I didn't much like his way when he first happened to come where we were, with Miss Marion on his arm. "'Oh, Captain Carton,' she says, "'here are two friends of mine,' he says. "'Indeed. These two marines?' Meaning Charker and self. "'Yes,' says she. I showed these two friends of mine, when they first came, all the wonders of Silver Store. He gave us a laughing look, and says he, You are in luck, men. I would be disrated and go before the mast to-morrow, to be shown the way upward again by such a guide. You are in luck, men. When we had saluted, and he and the lady had waltzed away, I said, You were a pretty fellow, too, to talk of luck. You may go to the devil. Mr. Commissioner Porridge and Mrs. Commissioner, showed among the company on that occasion like the king and queen of a much greater Britain than Great Britain. Only two other circumstances in that jovial night made much separate impression on me. One was this. A man in our draft of marines named Tom Packer, a wild, unsteady young fellow, 
but the son of a respectable shipwright in Portsmouth Yard, and a good scholar who had been well brought up, comes to me after a spell of dancing, and takes me aside by the elbow, and says, swearing angrily, "'Gil Davis, I hope I may not be the death of Sergeant Druce one day.' Now, I knew Druce had always borne particularly hard on this man, and I knew this man to be of a very hot temper. So I said, "'Tut nonsense, don't talk so to me. If there's a man in the corps who scorns the name of an assassin, that man and Tom Packer are one.' Tom wipes his head, being in a mortal sweat, says he, "'I hope so, but I can't answer myself when he lords it over me, as he has just now done, before a woman. I tell you what, Gil, mark my words, it'll go hard with Sergeant Druce, if ever we are in an engagement together, and he has to look to me to save him. Let him say a prayer, then, if he knows one, for it's all over with him, and he is on his deathbed. Mark my words.' I did mark his words and very soon afterwards, too, as will shortly be taken down. The other circumstance that I noticed at that ball was the gaiety and attachment of Christian George King. The innocent spirits that Sambo Pilate was in, and the impossibility he found himself under of showing all the little colony, but especially the ladies and children, how fond he was of them, how devoted to them, and how faithful to them for life and death, for present, future, and everlasting, made a great impression on me, if ever a man, Sambo or no Sambo, was trustful and trusted, to what may be called quite an infantine and sweetly beautiful extent, surely I thought that morning when I did at last lie down to rest, it was that Sambo pilot, Christian George King. This may account for my dreaming of him. He stuck in my sleep cornerwise, and I couldn't get him out. He was always flitting about me, dancing round me, and peeping in over my hammock, though I woke and dozed off again fifty times. At last, when I opened my eyes, there he really was, looking in at the open side of the little dark hut, which was made of leaves, and had Charker's hammock slung in it as well as mine. "'Soger,' he says, in a sort of low croak. "'Yup!' "'Hello,' says I, starting up. "'What? You are there, are you?' "'Yes,' says he. "'Christian George King got news.' "'What news has he got?' "'Pirates out!' I was on my feet in a second. So was Charker. We were both aware that Captain Carton, in command of the boats, constantly watched the mainland for a secret signal, though, of course, it was not known to such as us what that signal was. Christian George King had vanished before we touched the ground, but the word was already passing from hut to hut to turn out quietly, and we knew that the nimble barbarian had got hold of the truth, or something near it. In a space among the trees behind the encampment of us visitors, naval and military, was a snugly screened spot where we kept the stores that were in use, and did our cookery. The word was passed to assemble there. It was very quickly given, and was given, so far as we were concerned, by Sergeant Druce, who was as good in a soldier point of view as he was bad in a tyrannical one. We were ordered to drop into this space quietly behind the trees, one by one. As we assembled there, the seamen assembled too. Within ten minutes, as I should estimate, we were all there, except the usual guard upon the beach. The beach, we could see it through the wood, looked as it always had done in the hottest time of the day. The guard were in the shadow of the sloop's hull, and nothing was moving but the sea, and that moved very faintly. Work had always been knocked off at that hour, until the sun grew less fierce and the sea-breeze rose, so that its being holiday with us made no difference just then in the look of the place. But I may mention that it was a holiday, and the first we had had since our hard work began. Last night's ball had been given, on the leaks being repaired and the careening done. The worst of the work was over, and to-morrow we were to begin to get the sloop afloat again. 
We marines were now drawn up here under arms. The chase party were drawn up separate. The men of the Columbus were drawn up separate. The officers stepped out into the midst of the three parties and spoke so as all might hear. Captain Carton was the officer in command, and he had a spyglass in his hand. His coxswain stood by him with another spyglass, and with a slate on which he seemed to have been taking down signals. "'Now, men,' said Captain Carton, "'I have to let you know, for your satisfaction, firstly, that there are ten pirate-boats, strongly manned and armed, lying hidden up a creek yonder on the coast, under the overhanging branches of the dense trees. Secondly, that they will certainly come out this night, when the moon rises, on a pillaging and murdering expedition, of which some part of the mainland is the object. Thirdly, don't cheer, men, that we will give chase, and, if we can get at them, rid the world of them, please God. Nobody spoke that I heard, and nobody moved that I saw. Yet there was a kind of ring, as if every man answered and approved, with the best blood that was inside of him. "'Sir,' said Captain Marion, "'I beg to volunteer on this service with my boats. My people volunteer to the ship's boys.' "'In His Majesty's name and service,' the other answers, touching his hat, "'I accept your aid with pleasure. Lieutenant Linderwood, how will you divide your men?' I was ashamed. I give it out to be written down as large and plain as possible. I was heart and soul ashamed of my thoughts of those two sick officers, Captain Marion and Lieutenant Underwood, when I saw them then and there. The spirit in those two gentlemen beat down their illness, and very ill I knew them to be, like St. George beating down the dragon. Pain and weakness, want of ease and want of rest, had no more place in their minds than the fear itself. Meaning now to express for my lady to write down exactly what I felt then and there, I felt this— you two brave fellows that I have been so grudgeful of, I know that if you were dying you would put it off to get up and do your best, and then you would be so modest that in lying down again to die you would hardly say, I did it. It did me good. It really did me good. But to go back to where I broke off, says Captain Carton to Lieutenant Linderwood, Sir, how will you divide your men? There is not room for all, and a few men should in any case be left here. There was some debate about it. At last it was resolved to leave eight marines and four seamen on the island, beside the sloop's two boys. And because it was considered that the friendly sambos would only want to be commanded in case of any danger, though none at all was apprehended there, the officers were in favour of leaving the two non-commissioned officers, Druce and Charker. It was a heavy disappointment to them, just as my being one of the left was a heavy disappointment to me. Then, but not soon afterwards, we men drew lots for it, and I drew Island. So did Tom Packer. So, of course, did four more of our rank and file. When this was settled, verbal instructions were given to all hands to keep the intended expedition secret, in order that the women and children might not be alarmed, or the expedition put in difficulty by more volunteers. The assembly was to be on that same spot at sunset. Every man was to keep up an appearance, meanwhile, of occupying himself in his usual way. That is to say, every man excepting four old trusty seamen, who were appointed with an officer, to see to the arms and ammunition, and to muffle the relics of the boats, and to make everything as trim and swift and silent as it could be made. The Sambo pilot had been present all the while, in case of his being wanted, and had said to the officer in command, five hundred times if he had said it once, that Christian George King would stay with the sojiers, and take care of the boofer ladies and the boofer childs, Boofer being that native's expression for beautiful. He was now asked a few questions concerning the putting off of the boats, and in particular whether there was any way of embarking at the back of the island, 
which Captain Carton would have half liked to do, and then have dropped round in its shadow and slanted across to the main. But, no, says Christian George King, no, no, told you so ten time, no, 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 all reef, all rock, all swim, all drown. Straightening out as he said it like a swimmer gone mad, and turning over on his back on dry land and spluttering himself to death, in a manner that made him quite an exhibition. The sun went down, after appearing to be a long time about it, and the assembly was called. Every man answered to his name, of course, and was at his post. It was not yet black-dark, and the roll was only just gone through, when up comes Mr. Commissioner Portage with his diplomatic coat on. "'Captain Carton,' says he, "'Sir, what is this?' "'This, Mr. Commissioner,' he was very short with him, "'is an expedition against the pirates. It is a secret expedition, so please to keep it a secret.' "'Sir,' says Commissioner Portage, "'I trust there is going to be no unnecessary cruelty committed.' "'Sir,' returns the officer, "'I trust not.' "'That is not enough, sir,' cries Commissioner Porridge, getting wroth. "'Captain Carton, I give you notice. Government requires you to treat the enemy with great delicacy, consideration, clemency, and forbearance.' "'Sir,' says Captain Carton, "'I am an English officer commanding English men, and I hope I am not likely to disappoint the government's just expectations, but I presume you know that these villains under their black flag—' have despoiled our countrymen of their property, burnt their homes, barbarously murdered them and their little children, and worse than murdered their wives and daughters. "'Perhaps I do, Captain Carton,' answers Porridge, waving his hand with dignity. "'Perhaps I do not. It is not customary, sir, for government to commit itself.' "'It matters very little, Mr. Porridge, whether or no. Believing that I hold my commission by the allowance of God, and not that I have received it direct from the devil, I shall certainly use it.' with all avoidance of unnecessary suffering, and with all merciful swiftness in execution, to exterminate these people from the face of the earth. Let me recommend you to go home, sir, and to keep out of the night air." Never another syllable did the officer say to the Commissioner, but turned away to his men. The Commissioner buttoned his diplomatic coat to the chin, said, "'Mr. Kitten, attend me,' gasped, half-choked himself, and took himself off. It now fell very dark, indeed. I have seldom, if ever, seen it darker, nor yet so dark. The moon was not due until one in the morning, and it was but a little after nine when our men lay down there where they were mustered. It was pretended that they were to take a nap, but everybody knew that no nap was to be got under the circumstances. Though all were very quiet, there was a restlessness among the people, much what I have seen among the people on a race-course when the bell has rung for the saddling for the great race with large stakes on it. At ten they put off, only one boat putting off at a time, another following in five minutes, both then lying on their oars until another followed. Ahead of all, paddling his own outlandish little canoe without a sound, went the Sambo pilot, to take them safely outside the reef. No light was shown but once, and that was in the commanding officer's own hand. I lighted the dark lantern for him, and he took it from me when he embarked. They had blue lights and such light with them, but kept themselves as dark as murder. The expedition got away with wonderful quietness, and Christian George King soon came back dancing with joy. "'Yup, soldier!' says he to myself, in very objectionable kind of convulsions. "'Christian George Kings are very glad. Parrots all be blown a pieces. Yup, yup!' My reply to that cannibal was, "'However glad you may be, hold your noise, and don't dance jigs and slap your knees about it, for I can't abear to see you do it.' I was on duty then, we twelve who were left being divided into four watches of three each, three hours' spell. 
I was relieved at twelve. A little before that time I had challenged, and Miss Marion and Miss Beltot had come in. Oh, "'Good Davis,' says Mr. Marion, "'what is the matter? Where's my brother?' I told her what was the matter, and where her brother was. "'Oh, heaven help him!' says she, clasping her hands and looking up. She was close in front of me, and she looked most lovely, to be sure. "'He is not sufficiently recovered, not strong enough for such strife.' "'If you had seen him, miss,' I told her, "'as I saw him when he volunteered, you would have known that his spirit is strong enough for any strife. It will bear his body, miss, to wherever duty calls him. It will always bear him to an honourable life or a brave death.' "'Heaven bless you,' says she, touching my arm. "'I know it. Heaven bless you.' Miss Beltart surprised me by trembling and saying nothing. They were still standing, looking towards the sea and listening, after the relief had come round. It continuing very dark, I asked to be allowed to take them back. Miss Marion thanked me, and she put her arm in mine, and I did take them back. I have now got to make a confession that will appear singular. After I had left them, I laid myself down on my face on the beach, and cried for the first time since I had frightened birds as a boy at Snorridge Bottom, to think what a poor, ignorant, low-placed private soldier I was. It was only for half a minute or so. A man can't at all times be quite master of himself, and it was only for half a minute or so. Then I up and went to my hut, and turned into my hammock, and fell asleep with wet eyelashes and a sore, sore heart, just as I had often done when I was a child, and had been worse used than usual. I slept as a child under those circumstances might, very sound, and yet very sore at heart all through my sleep. I was awoke by the words, "'He is determined, man!' I had sprung out of my hammock, and had seized my firelock, and was standing on the ground, saying the words to myself, "'He is a determined man!' But the curiosity of my state was that I seemed to be repeating them after somebody, and to have been wonderfully startled by hearing them. As soon as I came to myself, I went out of the hut and away to where the guard was. Charter challenged. "'Who goes there?' "'A friend.' "'Not Gill,' says he, as he shouldered his piece. "'Gill,' says I. "'Why, what the deuce do you do out of your hammock?' says he. "'Too hot for sleep,' says I. "'Is it all right?' "'Right,' says Charker. "'Yes, yes. All's right enough here. Ah, uh, what should be wrong here? It's the boats that we want to know of, except for the fireflies twinkling about, and the lonesome splashes of the great creatures they drop into the water.' "'There's nothing going on here to ease a man's mind from the boats.' The moon was above the sea, and had risen, I should say, some half an hour. As Charker spoke, with his face towards the sea, I, looking landward, suddenly laid my right hand on his breast, and said, "'Don't move. Don't turn. Don't raise your voice. You never saw a Maltese face here.' "'No. What do you mean?' he asked, staring at me. "'Nor yet an English face with one eye and a patch across the nose?' "'No. What ails you?' "'What do you mean?' I had seen both, looking at us round the stem of a coconut tree, when the moon struck them. I had seen that Sambo pilot with one hand laid on the stem of the tree, drawing them back into the heavy shadow. I had seen their naked cutlasses twinkle and shine, like bits of the moonshine in the water that had got blown ashore among the trees by the light wind. I had seen it all, in a moment. And I saw in a moment, as any man would, that the signalled move of the pirates on the mainland was a plot and a feint, that the leak had been made to disable the sloop, and that the boats had been tempted away to leave the island unprotected, that the pirates had landed by some secreted way at the back, and that Christian George King was a double-dyed traitor, a most infernal villain. I considered still, all in one and the same moment, that Charker was a brave man, but not quick with his head, 
and that Sergeant Druce, with a much better head, was close by. All I said to Charker was, "'I am afraid we are betrayed. Turn your back full to the moonlight on the sea, and cover the stem of the coconut tree, which will then be right before you, at the height of a man's heart. Are you right?' "'I'm right,' says Charker, turning instantly, and falling into position with a nerve of iron. "'And right ain't left, is it, Gil?' A few seconds brought me to Sergeant Druce's hut. He was fast asleep, and, being a heavy sleeper, I had to lay my hand upon him to rouse him. The instant I touched him he came rolling out of his hammock, and upon me like a tiger. And a tiger he was, except that he knew what he was up to in this utmost heat as well as any man. I had a struggle with him pretty hard to bring him to his senses, panting all the while, for he gave me a breather. "'Sergeant, I am Gil Davis. Treachery! Pirates on the island!' The last words brought him round, and he took his hands off. "'I have seen two of them within this minute,' says I, and so I told him what I had told Harry Charker. His soldierly, though tyrannical, head was clear in an instant. He didn't waste one word, even of surprise. "'Order the guard,' says he, "'to draw off quietly into the fort.' They called the enclosure I have mentioned before the fort, though it was not much of that. "'Then get you to the fort as quick as you can. Rouse up every soul there and fasten the gate. I will bring in all those who are at Signal Hill. If we are surrounded before we can join you, you must make a sally and cut us out if you can.' The word among our men is women and children. He burst away like fire going before the wind over dry reeds. He roused up the seven men who were off duty, and had them bursting away with him, before they knew that they were not asleep. I reported orders to Charker, and ran to the fort, as I have never run at any other time in all my life, no, not even in a dream. The gate was not fast, and had no good fastening, only a double wooden bar, a poor chain, and a bad lock. Those I secured as well as they could be secured in a few seconds by one pair of hands, and so ran to that part of the building where Miss Marion lived. I called to her loudly by the name until she answered. I then called loudly all the names I knew. Miss Macy, Miss Marion's married sister, Mr. Macy, Mrs. Venning, Mr. and Mrs. Fisher, even Mr. and Mrs. Portage. Then I called out, "'All you gentlemen here, get up and defend the place. We are caught in a trap. Pirates have landed. We are attacked.' At the terrible word pirates, for those villains had done such deeds in those seas as never can be told in writing, and can scarcely be so much as thought of, cries and screams rose up from every part of the place. Quickly lights moved about from window to window, and cries moved about with them, and men, women, and children came flying down into the square. I remarked myself even then what a number of things I seemed to see at once. I noticed Mrs. Macy coming towards me, carrying all her three children together. I noticed Mr. Portage in the greatest terror, in vain trying to get on his diplomatic coat, and Mr. Kitten respectfully tying his pocket-handkerchief over Mrs. Portage's nightcap. I noticed Mrs. Beltart running out screaming, and shrink upon the ground near me, and cover her face with her hands, and lie all of a bundle shivering. But what I noticed with the greatest pleasure was, the determined eyes with which those men, of that mind that I had thought fine gentlemen, came round me with what arms they had to the full and cool and resolute as I could be, for my life, ay, and for my soul too, into the bargain. The chief person being Mr. Macy, I told him how the three men of the guard would be at the gate directly, if they were not already there, and how Sergeant Druce and the other seven were gone to bring in the outlying part of the people of Silver Store. I next urged him, for the love of all who were dear to him, to trust no Sambo, and above all if he could get any good chance at Christian George King not to lose it but to put him out of the world. "'I will follow your advice to the letter, Davis,' says he. "'What next?' My answer was, 
I think, sir, I would recommend you next to order down such heavy furniture and lumber as can be moved and make a barricade within the gate. That's good again, says he. Will you see it done? I'll willingly help to do it, says I, unless or until my superior, Sergeant Druce, gives me other orders. He shook me by the hand, and having told off some of his companions to help me, bestirred himself to look to the arms and ammunition. A proper quick, brave, steady, ready gentleman. One of their three little children was deaf and dumb. Miss Marion had been from the first with all the children, soothing them and dressing them. Poor little things, they had been brought out of their beds, and making them believe that it was a game of play, so that some of them were now even laughing. I had been working hard with all the others at the barricade, and had got up pretty good breastwork within the gate. Druce and the seven men had come back, bringing in the people from the signal hill, and had worked along with us, but I had not so much as spoken a word to Druce, nor had Druce so much as spoken a word to me, for we were both too busy. The breastwork was now finished, and I found Miss Marion at my side, with a child in her arms. Her dark hair was fastened around her head with a band. She had a quantity of it, and it looked even richer and more precious, put up hastily out of her way, than I had seen it look when it was carefully arranged. She was very pale, but extraordinarily quiet and still. "'Dear good Davis,' says she, "'I've been waiting to speak one word to you.' I turned to her directly. If I had received a musket-ball in the heart, and she had stood there, I almost believe I should have turned to her before I dropped. "'This pretty little creature,' said she, kissing the child in her arms, who was playing with her air and trying to pull it down, "'cannot hear what we say, can hear nothing. I trust you so much, and have such great confidence in you, that I want you to make me a promise.' "'What is it, miss?' "'That, if we are defeated, and you are absolutely sure of my being taken, you will kill me.' "'I shall not be alive to do it, miss. I shall have died in your defence before it comes to that. They must step across my body to lay a hand on you.' "'But if you are alive, you brave soldier,' how she looked at me, "'and if you cannot save me from the pirates, living, you will save me dead. Tell me so.' "'Well, I told her I would do that at the last, if all else failed. She took my hand, my rough coarse hand, and put it to her lips. She put it to the child's lips, and the child kissed it. I believe I had the strength of half a dozen men in me from that moment, until the fight was over.' End of the Island of Silver Store, Part 2